Hey, and welcome to Why'd You Buy That? I'm here with Nancy Teller and Jessica Steele. So if everything goes smoothly with the production of this pod, it'll be out right before Thanksgiving. And we were just joking about last year's Thanksgiving episode where I was asking Dan the price of a pound of turkey. <laughs> I told him not to bring it up, but you know, Sorry. brought it up before the episode. He's bringing it you up know, on now, the episode. It makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, anyway, regarding Thanksgiving, what are your thoughts on Thanksgiving uh, and and gratitude in this season? What are you thankful for? Well, I'm grateful for chicken, which we will be eating on Thanksgiving this year. What? No, th- no have, turkey? Uh, well, we ha- uh, there's probably turkey, but it's not as good as chicken. <laughs> wait, time out. Wait, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> Let's stop there. You have chicken like five times a week. What What's going on? Yeah, it's because it's way better than turkey. <laughs> Jess, your thoughts? Hmm. I tend to agree, but on Thanksgiving, I, it feels strange to not have turkey. Oh, very diplomatic answer. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, go back to your story. Sorry to interrupt. Well, we are living with my in-laws temporarily, and you know we're not having anybody over because of of COVID. And and my mother-in-law was like, I don't, ah, don't want to make a turkey. It's so much work. And I was like, yeah, you shouldn't. You can get a, a nice, well, like ready to go cooked seasoned chicken at Costco for $5. Oh my God. Like <laughs> those things are amazing. Way better than like the dry turkey you're used to eating on Thanksgiving, right? Oh like God. turkey no. is just dry. No. You're it having is. a $5 piece of chicken for Thanksgiving? No, a five dollar whole chicken, whole chicken. It's the entire rotisserie <laughs> chicken for five bucks. That's it's awesome. It is so good. So that's where I stand on you know. And it's pre cooked. Yeah, it's cooked. It's just literally ready to be eaten. You just open I have it and more eat questions. it. <laughs> Are you, do you make the traditional sides to go with chicken? Then yes. Okay. Yes, definitely. So cranberry sauce is delicious. I think last year I actually talked about this special jello that my family makes, my mom, my sister, and I got in trouble after the episode because there was a lot more nuance to this like jello with whipped topping than I gave credit to on the episode. So, you know, we got we we we'll definitely have a few different Do you want to try types. it again? You want the do-over? Would you like to I don't describe know. it? I you know <laughs> My sister, she knows this. Fa- she knows the family history and the recipes and all the things in in detail. But this Jello is beyond my ability to describe. It's like an orange Jello with cut up bananas and marish. I don't know how you say it, maraschino cherries. And there's a whipped cream on top, but there's like juice from the fruit that gets folded into the cream layered on top. It's, it is delicious. But now that I described that, I don't, I'm not going to be at my parents' house. So I don't know that I'm going to be eating that this year. Jess, what are your favorite sides? Are you having turkey? So this will be kind of a, an interesting year for us. We're not going to go home to our parents in Pennsylvania, where we usually kind of travel down there and see extended family. But we've got, you know, some grandparents that they kind of care for, et cetera, that we're just trying to be extra precautious surrounding COVID and travel and all of that. So Adam and I will be in our apartment, just the two of us for Thanksgiving. So I am not a super skilled cook and we have all the best restaurants in the world right outside our door in New York. So, um, wait, wait, wait. Costco? Are you going to Costco and getting the chicken? I've never been to Costco. I will admit that right now. Uh, never. Uh, I, uh, I, oh I, I you. you can use my Costco. 
get a chicken. No, so there's there's a really great restaurant in our neighborhood that does like a to go full Thanksgiving meal. Like oh, that's awesome. Courses. That sounds delicious. Um, yeah, they're it, they're a great restaurant. So we just kind of put in a pre order for that, and we will have Thanksgiving for two. And that's it. Our other Thanksgiving um, tradition, though, is to watch all of the Friends. Like they do a Thanksgiving themed episode each season on the show Friends. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those, but they're they're always really funny. So we go through and watch like all of the Thanksgiving themed episodes. There's like nine seasons or something. So it's like a marathon of just those. Wait, so are they still coming out with those or they have done that in the past and you're just watching? It's the old episodes. Yeah. So like Friends, you know, from when Friends was on um, each season, they had, yeah, like a funny Thanksgiving themed episode. So we kind of watched those. So you guys watch like four hours, the same four hours of Friends every year? Yeah. Is that, is that right? Okay. Yep. Okay. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Is it funny? Is it like, I mean, it must be rewarding enough for you to continue to do it. Yeah, it's it, they're funny. I mean, it's the same as watching like the same couple of Christmas movies every year or something. You know, like yeah. you know how it ends, yeah. but um, yeah, 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 it's, yeah, it's still funny and, and fun to do. So, what about you, Drew? It'll just be my immediate family. We'll be making the the turkey here and having some of our traditional dishes. Spinach Madeline is something that my mom made a long time ago as part of her Thanksgiving meal, and we just always eat it. It's really delicious, but we only are sort of have it at Thanksgiving. So whenever you have a taste of it, you're like, oh yeah, it's Thanksgiving now. <laughs> so that's what we, that's what we eat. Those are the best dishes. The ones that are good, but you just don't eat it very often, you know? And I've had your mom's cooking, Drew. It is, she knows what she's doing. Mm, she's a good cook. So since we're, um, why'd you buy that? What effect do you think gratitude has on people's spending behaviors? When I think of gratitude, I always think of this quote, which I, I should have looked up beforehand of who said this, but something's like gratitude turns what you have into enough. And I think that that mindset does have a big impact on spending. You know, when I kind of, I'll say shifted my own money mindset, you know, it was thinking like, do I need this new sweater or am I already grateful for all the things I own? And, you know, I'm just buying another thing just to buy it. Like, I feel like it if you have kind of a a mindset of gratitude from the start and you feel like what you have is already enough, you know, sometimes that extra stuff just isn't as compelling anymore. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, uh, I think in our society in the U S you know, sometimes, and probably in, in a lot of places, there's, there's a feeling like you can buy something and that's going to like enrich your life or like help you move forward in some way, right? Not just to be happier or sometimes just to be happier, but also sometimes to be like, man, if I had this, then I could really like, I could be more effective in, you know, reaching this goal or I, you know, some other thing. And I think, I think along the same lines as what you said, Jess, having, having just a sense of gratitude for your life as it sits right now without changing anything, I think can help, you know, squash some of that impulsive desire to just be always buying things as a form of, of enrichment or all the reasons why we, we buy more than we need. So anything in particular you're thankful for this year? It's been one hell of a year this year. (laughs) (laughs) It's been one crazy, crazy year. So what are you thankful for? I mean, I think this year it feels like kind of a sense of like back to the basics, Um, you know, whereas last year I probably would have listed like travel and a a few of these kind of more 
if you want to say extravagant or these bigger picture things. And this year it's like that all of our family is healthy. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm always thankful for that, but just, it really feels like this year you kind of are just taking stock of like the most basic things that, you know, a lot of people right now are having a much harder year, you know? So you, you have to kind of just be so grateful for, you know, we've got a home health, um, you know, just those basics. I've had uh, a number of things, you know, the coronavirus and just all, all that's gone on this year with kind of political divisiveness and the election and all the things around that and the coronavirus. I think it's easy to see what's negative about those. But, you know, there's also good things that can come out of those things. Um, for example, for me personally, the increased political toxicity and and just kind of intensity has forced me to be more involved and explore my own political perspectives and to have conversations with people that I trust to try to develop a more well-rounded perspective. With coronavirus, we've had some blessings for our family. Actually, we, we moved from North Carolina to Utah with the intention of moving to Costa Rica for six months while my wife goes to massage therapy school. We were supposed to do that this last summer. So we would, she'd be finishing up school here in the next month if without the coronavirus. But we ended up staying with my in-laws for the majority of this year. And that's actually been a big blessing for us in a lot of ways. One is that my wife's had some, some back pain for a long time. And we've been able to kind of find the right combination of chiropractic care and she got an MRI and different information that's helped us really identify specifically what's going wrong. And she's in a much better place, much less pain and and is more prepared to go to a massage therapy school. So that's been huge. Also being able to spend time with family in kind of a locked down way. It sort of feels like in some sense, like when it snows outside or it's raining really hard and you get that feeling like no one's going to knock at the door, like everybody's home for the night and there's just kind of like a closeness and unity in the family. And so despite all the, you know, things that we talk about frequently about the coronavirus that are really serious and, and damaging, I think there's been some positives as well. How about you, Drew? I'll echo that, you know, in terms of the kids are at home now in school. And so you get to, and I'm working from home. So the, you get to see them every day and during all the different parts of the day. And so that's been a, been a positive, you know, we, uh, we do have our health and thoughts to those who may have been affected negatively, either themselves or in their families re regarding this virus. We do have our health and, you know, thankful for that. And the world keeps turning. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's been some, you know, the election happened. We've gotten some of that out of our system. I'm glad to see that our democratic institutions have held <laughs> for now, at least. <laughs> Jess, you with me, Jess? I'm with you. <laughs> Drew, Drew and it's I had a nice did. conversation <laughs> But, you know, that's good. And, and there's been some movement on the global warming front very recently. And so I'm starting to feel like, you know, with debate and that old uh, people will make good decisions and not saying uh, I respect Republican point of view very much. So and we're both in this together. I'm a Democrat. But anyway, the point is, is that, <laughs> you know, we're going to we're going to make the progress we, we need. I really do think that. And everyone's voice is is really vital to the process. So I'm thankful for that. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I think in some ways, 
I mean, I, it's been such a difficult year and again, much more difficult for many people besides, you know, myself, but sometimes it's also interesting just to think like that we lived through this piece of history, you know, it really is such, such a unique year and that you'll kind of look back in some parts of it, remember fondly or just that you lived through it. I don't know. It's like we survived. I'm grateful for that. Um, You know, (laughs) March feels like a very long time ago, but not to say that we're even on the other side of this thing, kind of, but, you know, just in hindsight that years from now we'll be like, man, remember 2020? Um, You know, that that was a year. Remember that Thanksgiving that we just had to order takeout and (laughs) eat it alone in our apartment? Um, You know. Yeah. Well said. So Jess, I, w- I did want to ask you a question as I thought about your Thanksgiving and just COVID and kind of being locked in quite a bit. So I am living with my wife, my two kids who are just full of life and young and, and learning they're eight and nine years old. We have a dog and my in-laws. And so there's a fair amount going on. And also kids just bring a different dynamic in terms of like interruptions and ideas and like different things flowing in and out. What's it been like for you to, you know, not have as many people around and have, you know, just different, like how how do the conversations go for you on a, on a day-to-day basis at home? And, and like, what's kind of the vibe there? And do you feel like you're missing more action and activity in your life? Or do you feel like it's like kind of calm and serene and you like that? You know, what, what's that kind of day-to-day dynamic like? I would say I'm actually a really pretty introverted person. Like I I like time by myself a lot and kind of need that to like reset. So living in New York, it's it's always kind of a balance of trying to carve out that time for myself when usually I am around like a lot of energy and people. So it's been a year of just like not feeling guilty about that. You know, there's no like fear <laughs> of missing out or um yeah. you know, feeling bad like I'm turning down plans. It's just I've read a ton. I've learned a little bit, still not great, but how to play the ukulele. Oh, sweet. Yeah. You know, just kind of like giving in to all of these quiet pastimes that otherwise you don't have time for. I do feel like Adam and I are probably closer than ever because we've had all of this time to like just even after all of these years, like have even deeper conversations and, you know, more time together. So again, I, in the context of like this not being a great time for the world, um, personally, there have been a lot of kind of really nice things about it, you know, or at least choosing to look at it that way. But yeah, I I feel for the people that don't have a lot of peace at home. Um, You know, I know that that can be kind of trying. My sister is, you know, working from home with two small kids and she's, she's got a lot going on all the time. So it's hard to be like, telling her how, yeah, <laughs> how green yeah. it is here. <laughs> so calm at home. Don't you think just being at home yeah. is so nice? Yeah. She's like, ah, I know. get me out of here. She's like hiding in a closet while we talk to have a moment for herself. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Any parting thoughts before we move on to part two? Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. However you're happy celebrating. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. So just to prep our listeners to part two, we're Talking about Thanksgiving right now and a big part of Thanksgiving is family, right? So in the next part of this pod, we talk to someone about the concept of money memories and how these money memories come from your family of origin. So stay tuned next for that conversation and be right back. This episode is brought to you by Weekly, our app that helps you stick to a budget. It's in the Apple iOS app store. You can also find us at weeklybudgeting.com.
we have a completely different take on budgeting. The traditional method is to operate on a month, to put everything into categories and subtract the money out of categories. But this ends in frustration for lots of people because they get halfway through the month, they may have overspent or underspent a category, they're not sure where to grab the money from. Oh, by the way, does this sound familiar? Hey, honey, where's the target receipt? I'm trying to figure out if that is a household expense or a food expense. It's just a disaster. So then you end up at the end of the month, you're not sure what happened, and you just give up. So we've come up with a different way, which is to operate on a weekly basis. We take your recurring income, your recurring expenses, we subtract your expenses from your income, and then we come up with what you can safely spend for a week. Then we keep you in touch with that number, downloading your transactions from the bank, so that you can always know what is safe to spend. This alleviates the guilt of spending and lets you spend with more joy. So we hope you give the app a try. Um, you can go to weeklybudgeting.com, click on the icon, go to the app store. You can also search in the app store for weekly budget or weekly budgeting. Right now we're at the top of the organic rankings for that. And give it a try. Let us know what you think. And welcome to the podcast and welcome to the weekly community. We'd like to welcome to the podcast, Ilona. Ilona is the writer and host of the podcast, Money Memories, which is the podcast designed to make money conversations less taboo, one money memory at a time. Ilona is also a financial writer whose work has been featured on Forbes and whose work can be seen at bearandbull.com. Is that right? Bear and the Bull. That's right. Bearandthebull.com. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm so excited. You know, we love to talk about the intersection between psychology and money and spending and money memories. When I heard about your podcast, I was like, that's that's perfect. Can you tell me how you came up with the concept of money memories? Yeah, absolutely. I'm also a big fan of your show, I have to say. I love conversations around money that aren't always featuring the same typical things like saving for your Roth and things like that. So I love the angle you guys provide. The origin story of money memories is that... Um, a couple of months ago, back in April, I came up with this idea to start a financial literacy blog called Bear and the Bull, which is why <laughs> Bear and the Bull exists. And my initial aim was to kind of demystify different topics around personal finance because I had noticed that I had lots of friends who, even though they were super educated, accomplished, felt a certain level of discomfort when it came to personal finance topics. And I started thinking to myself, well, if these allegedly smart people feel uncomfortable managing their personal finances, imagining, you know, average people and then imagine myself as well. So I initially started with with this blog, Bear in the Bull. And my unique angle was to create all my blogs boats, my blog posts, excuse me, in Spanish and English because my father is Cuban and I speak Spanish. And so I felt that, you know, the Latino audience was kind of underserved in that regard. So I started writing these blog posts and very quickly I realized that there's many financial literacy bloggers um, and also bilingual ones as well. And so I realized that in order, if I wanted to kind of to continue to create compelling content or connect with people, I would have to do it in a different way because I felt like there were already many voices in that space. And the idea for Money Memories came about as I was featured on a, a webinar about improving your relationship with finances. And I just said, you know, my earliest money memory, and that was that was it. Like I finished my story. <laughs> I finished the webinar, but it was like implanted in my brain. I was like, money memories. So your website says you're fluent in Spanish, Russian, and German, and you're an avid world traveler. What are some things that you've seen in your travels and different attitudes towards money as you've been going around the world? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that always sticks out to me was the first the first time I ever went to Asia and I went to Hong Kong to stay with a couple of expat friends of mine and I landed there on a Sunday. So I got off this like 16-hour flight and it was hot, tired, and I remember and if anyone's ever been to Hong Kong, it's basically like a city of huge buildings and almost like malls because everything's so hot. You're always walking through some kind of mall or building that has air conditioning. So we were going through this like super luxury mall that had like Prada stores and Gucci and everything. And I could just see, I saw a bunch of women sitting out in like what looked like cardboard boxes. And, but they were just like everywhere all through the mall. And I was like, what is going on here? I was like, is there like a protest or something? And so <laughs> my friend mentioned just casually, she's like, oh, it's it's Sunday. And like on Sundays, all the Filipino maids are not allowed to like, that's like their day off where they're not allowed to be with like the families that they're taking care of. And so they are, they can't be at the house that they're, that they stay in during the week. And they just kind of, they do, they congregate outside. And I was just, and she said it just so casually. And I was like, how is that? I was like, what? <laughs> it was really shocking to me because you see all this like wealth around you and Hong Kong is such an expensive city as we all know. And like these, everything is just so luxurious. And at the same time, you see these people who are like sitting, bartering, eating, et cetera, on like boxes basically. Um, and it really made me realize kind of how, you know, not, no country is, no country is perfect. No system is perfect. Each We all have our own things and it's just a matter of, you know, what you're accustomed to seeing, but that was definitely something that really stood out to me. I think mostly because it was so jarring, like getting off a plane. And that's like your first impression of the country that you see. <laughs> so on your podcast, Money Memories, what are some of the remarkable memories you've had from some of your guests? Yeah, a great question. I think I love all the memories my guests share, whether they're big or small, because I think the whole point of it is like for every person, there's a kernel of truth. There's that kernel of recognition that like, oh, money is unique. But one of my personal favorites, just because of the story that ha- came after, was I, one of the early episodes I featured this guy called Boo Boo Boona. <laughs> Boo Boo. Uh, his episode is called Demystifying the Unicorn. And he is a startup founder based in South Africa. And he shared an early money memory about his grandfather, who was always very entrepreneurial. And so I think it's one of the like the user listener favorite episodes. People always tell me, I love Boo Boo, love his accent, I love his story. And so he was shared this really compelling story about his grandfather kind of, you know, hustling very hard to provide a better life for for his family. And after I released the episode, Boo Boo told me that he and his mom listened to it together. And uh, his mother actually told him that Boo Boo didn't know this, but his fr- grandfather could not read. So Boo Boo kind of had this whole other realization about his grandfather that he didn't even know about. And together, like they had, they shared this, him and his mother shared this beautiful moment where they could really like honor the life of his grandfather. And that was a really compelling moment for me because I was like, this is more than just my show. It's also a way for memories to resonate with other people, to resonate with the guests themselves. And that's probably one of my favorite stories about a money memory that I've shared. What's your earliest money memory? Yeah, maybe I should get a new one. But the one that always sticks out <laughs> with me is going to the bank with my dad when I was a little girl. My dad, like, he took me everywhere. Like, every spring break, I didn't go on vacation. I went to the IRS office with my dad because he had to file his taxes. And he was like, you just because they couldn't afford a babysitter. So I had to always go with my dad. And so I was like, always running around after my dad because he walks really fast. And he was like, walking really fast out of the bank. And I was like, nine. I was like, dad, wait. <laughs> Wait, wait, dad, why are you walking so fast? And he was like pretty upset. And I was like, well, what happened? And he's like, oh, this bank teller, the total should have come out to like 2502, but she said it was 2507. And when I pointed it out to her, she said it was close enough. And I was like, 
and, and he was like, there's no such thing as close enough in math, Alona. Math is math. There's only a right or wrong answer. Like how dare. And so he went off and I was like, so from a very young age, I was like, oh, like money is just a number. Like my, there's like, there's no, it's not like a, I don't know. Is this, is this dollar like green or blue? No, it's like a dollar bill is a dollar bill, five cents or five cents. And so I guess for some reason that kind of instilled the sense in me that there's nothing to fear about money because it's just math. It's just finite. So all you do is add and subtract and there's no, so I guess for me, like a lot of the emotional aspects of money or when people share their like more emotional money memories or like why they save and spend. I'm fortunate that I didn't really have that as much because I was always like, it's black and white, it's plus or minus. That's all you have to do. Um, so that's my earliest money memory. Yeah, that is interesting how a lot of times our emotions around money can actually get in the way. They can cause us to make decisions that are not in our best interest because we're either too free with our money or too restricted because of our emotional experiences or our mindset about money. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. That's something that I started learning about when I was doing money memories. I started realizing how much more emotional it was for people. Um, And I kind of started realizing that when I was writing my blog because I was like, wait a minute, if everyone knows you should be saving more than you spend, then everyone would have been doing that already. But people aren't, right? There's all sorts of financial challenges that come up. So there has to be something more to it than just following ABC. There has to be some kind of like emotional component to it. So that's what I've started to kind of investigate and explore through my show and and also just on my own when I reflect personally. So you had mentioned growing up in an immigrant family household. How do you think that affected your outlook on money? Ooh, I think that's a good question. And I think I've interviewed guests on my show and also just in life, I've met other people who come from immigrant backgrounds. And I think from my experience, it's funny because people will say, I'm Nigerian, so we're really frugal. Or like, oh, I'm, I, you know, I'm Asian, so we're really frugal. And I'm like, I think all immigrants that come to the U.S. are just kind of very frugal. I've yet to met someone who was like, and we were such big spenders when we came to America. I mean, God bless them if they were. Um, so I feel like the immigrant story is one of just, you know, scarcity mentality and um, frugality in general. But that's certainly, that's, that was certainly something that I experienced growing up. My parents were, um, we never, never bought clothes full price. We always, my mom and I always went shopping for sales. We still do. My parents are big negotiators. My dad is special. I just remember, I just also have a vivid memory, like going on vacation and being like, can I have a keychain? And my mom was like, and like, it would be like in Mexico, right? So the keychain would be like $3. And she's like, it's not worth more than 75 cents. So don't you dare come back paying more than 75 cents for it. And I was like, I just want, I just want this cute keychain. <laughs> and even then they're like, absolutely not. That's not what it's worth. And so I wouldn't get it. <laughs> so this kind of this, it was like instills in me, like the, like the true value of things never pay more than the true value, even if you really, really want to. <laughs> so, um, that's definitely affected my outlook, I guess, a little bit on finances. Well, that's, I mean, it's an interesting approach, right? Because yeah. the value <laughs> of something is, you know, it's subjective it to you. Yeah, yeah. It's like, how much do you want it? And like for you as a kid, you know, I don't know if your parents were paying for it, if you're, if you had some of your own money at that point, but the value is kind of like, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's worth three bucks. Yeah. So I guess I wonder if there are negative consequences to that early money story, which is, I guess if I was to rephrase it, don't pay more or only pay as much or maybe with a little profit that it costs the person to make it, you know? There's a lot of negative consequences because it totally overlooks things like externalities, opportunity costs, utility, and the most important thing of all, happiness. 
Like <laughs> it's something that I like I really started understanding when I when I started living on my own and I started working for a few years. Like for example, my parents are they're awesome, but like every Saturday was always devoted to cleaning the house. And I finally reached a point where I was like, I think I'm making enough money where like the opportunity cost of my happiness is worth having a cleaner because this is ridiculous. Like, yes, like it costs me nothing to clean my own home, but it costs me happiness, free time. And I've still slowly, I think I'm like behind the learning curve on things like that where I'm just like, no, we can't afford. I'm just like, you can, sometimes you should just pay for what makes you happy and makes your life easy. And I'm not, and especially if you have financial discipline, by all means go for it. So I've been talking to one of my friends who's all, who's kind of like a personal finance planner. And he's all, I'm always like, can I, he's like, he's like, Alona, you're, you're fine. Like you're fine. Like you can probably, you're, you can more, you can more than afford these things. It's just a matter of utility. And I'm trying to get better at yeah. So I, I feel like I definitely don't have, I haven't flexed that muscle. I didn't have to flex that muscle because my muscle that I flexed was like freaking out about everything. So I'm learning to be better about that. <laughs> so your website mentions helping first generation finance consumers make educated and informed money decisions. Do you feel like this is an audience that is often underserved? I think so. I think it is because I think so often in the immigrant experience, we talk about it as just like language maybe, or... Yes, we talk a little bit about culture and language systems, but I think sometimes when we talk about it, it's just like, oh, so you move to this country and you figure out the language and like, welcome to America, you got it. But we totally don't discuss like the impact of different political systems, socioeconomic values, things like that. So for example, my parents came from like communist systems. My father's from Cuba, I was from Russia. And I remember, like, I always felt like I had a hard time talking to them about my career aspirations because they were like, why do you aspire? Like, just settle. <laughs> And I remember wait, wait. <laughs> that was an actual thing they said. Yeah. They're just like, why are you always just like, can you just calm down? And like, there's my dad, he's right behind me. He's probably like, yeah, she's, that's what, she, that's what we always tell her. <laughs> but I remember my mom, I was like frustrated with this thing one time. Cause I was like, I don't know what path I should take. Should I go for another job? Should I go for business school? And she was like, candidly, she's like, you know, I don't know what to tell you Alona, because when I graduated from college, or no, she's like, when I decided to go to college in my country, it was, there was three tiers of income, one like low, middle, high, and high income was just three categories. It was like lawyers, doctors, engineers. So you just picked one because ostensibly you all got the same salary in the communist system. I mean, obviously there was corrupt, but at the time you don't know that you just know no matter what subject I take, this will be my limit. So there's no point in what's more, you don't get rewarded for more. You only get like what's given to you. And so going back to your earlier question about like educating first generation finance consumers, like no one really talks about how hard that is to, when you go to a school system that your parents didn't go to, like they, like they, we had different educational systems, different values in society. Like America is very almost like individualistic, I would say very opportunistic. And the countries that they came from are much more like community oriented, less self, more community. And so I felt like I was always chafing. I was always like, I want more. I want this. And they were like, calm down, like think about the family, (laughs) you know? And so I feel like that's not often. And that also permeates into financial decisions, professional decisions, right? Like I really had to push myself to pursue a career in finance because I didn't have that blueprint laid out for me. I never had anyone who did that before. So to answer your question, I think, yes, it is underserved, but I think it's not, it's underserved in a way that it's just maybe like overlooked. People don't consider it because they just think, oh, you go to school, you make funny jokes and you like, you seem to get American culture, but the challenge of kind of being that in, in that in-between 
place isn't always recognized. And it does really have a huge effect on, like, I can certainly say I made decisions that were less than optimal because I was worried of the ramifications of like cultural consequences, right? So yeah, that's a very long-winded way of saying yes. I think it is not often addressed. So you must have a really unique perspective on societal systems, as you mentioned, or different ways of handling money in a society. So let me ask you, what is your view of Wall Street and the stock market and all of those mechanisms? <laughs> that's funny. Um, it's like, that's such a complicated question. But it's funny because my, I actually had a friend from Germany who also was working on a similar thing. He, he works for a TV station there called Deutsche Welle. And they're working on a series around like how young people relate to money. And he asked me, he was like, what's your view on people who want to invest in like socially sustainable causes, but um, still want to make profits in the stock market? And I was like, well, well, I don't think those two things are fundamentally opposed because I forgot what I said, but basically I was like, every choice you make every day is a decision for or against capitalism. That's like a choice. It's an active choice you're making um, by participating in the system. And so I guess my view on that overall is like, maybe like capitalism, I'll say instead of like stock, I'll use that term to kind of be the umbrella term for all the things, all the actors involved, like Wall Street, stock markets, et cetera. I think it's an imperfect system. I don't think there's such thing as a perfect system. And I think in the imperfect system, the risk that it runs is that like people can benefit, but the people who hurt are way worse off than people in like communist systems. But I think overall, it's the most efficient system that we've as humans have thought of given like our human limitations and our human tendencies to be like not awesome people all the time. <laughs> I think it's like maybe the system that we deserve. You know how people say people have the government they deserve sometimes. So that's kind of my take on it. But I'm always refreshing that question in my mind. Like I think that answer for me has evolved over time, definitely from high school to now. And please ask me that question again in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years. Maybe when I'm 60, I'll be like, I barter. I don't exist in the confines of the system. Like, <laughs> I cannot be contained. <laughs> but that's kind of where I think of, that's my view on it now as a 30 year old person. Dan, same question to you. Yeah, I liked, I mean, I, I feel similarly, you know, it's, I think there's a number of different systems and we, you know, we're kind of forced to work within the system that we're that we live in right if you live in a co communist society then that's what you're doing and if you live in a capitalist society then that's what you're doing and i agree that you know there's not a perfect system i think you pointed out two things that i think are important i think the the drive to excel that you have in capitalism is really critical to kind of unlocking human potential and improving society uh, but i also think I like what you said about how kind of the emphasis for your parents and in their lifehood was was the community. There's more emphasis on the community. And I think that's one of the things that actually drives down happiness in America is our lack of community or our community is only like a digital community and not a community of people that we actually live by and interact with. And so I think that's something that uh, that in America we we lack and I would love to see more emphasis on that. I don't know that that communism is the solution to that particular problem, but it's, you know, it's an interesting parallel that you brought up. I think that the mechanism of Wall Street and the ability for people to participate in the ownership of companies and to expand their wealth has been a huge driver of productivity and growth and innovation and overall has been you know, really move the, move the world forward in interesting ways. I agree with the whole, we've sort of get, we can get disconnected from 
community and the effects where we spend our money has on the wider community. If it's all about, always about making money, you're not th- maybe thinking about how some of these money making enterprises are affecting things such as global warming, which is a favorite cause of mine. I mean, not for global warming, for <laughs> controlling global warming. <laughs> but yeah, so it, so there. So in other words, there needs to be these guardrails, which generally are introduced with by government. So that things don't get off of off of the rails, and then we can sort of, you know, you can make as much money as. Generally, you get rich if you make other people rich, right? That's the idea. So you can be as rich as you want inside of this society, and you're not necessarily limited by what by what you do. You're limited about how well you you serve other people. Does that make sense? Yeah, I also want to not to put a damper on this, but I think all of us are exhibiting like confirmation bias because for all of us. We've all succeeded in the capitalist system. We have all been beneficiaries of it in some way. So it's a lot easier to be like, yeah, it has bad things, but overall it works really well when you're overwhelmingly receiving the benefits of it. So I think it would be an interesting question to pose to people who really are like marginalized and left out because I'm sure they might have stronger views on why it doesn't work in like a system that could be improved. But it's hard when the system is working in your favor for you to really be A, to be incentivized to really fix it and B, for you to think really deeply about, you know, like, because <laughs> you're like, oh, that's like a thing that happens, but not to me. So I always yeah, feel I think that that's, way. A, that's a great point. point. Yeah. Do you, do you have any like additional insight or people that you've talked to that are kind of like, you know, that, that would provide that perspective that you shared? I think about that a lot and I'm not, I'm not sure like how I stand on it. But for example, there was a great piece in the Wall Street Journal about how there's been a decrease in the number of black owned banks. And what that kind of means for underwriting for black communities. And we know based on statistics that there is a lot of discrimination in like lending practices, right? But also like, why is there, why is there that? It's because as like you can say, banks are, banks say like, oh, as a cohort, this group of people is more risky. And so therefore we don't extend them loans. But when you start thinking about like what makes that group of people risky, oh, is it like systemic racism that comes from about from like years of being enslaved? <laughs> and then you're like, whoa, I just entered like, well, how can I rectify that? You know? So it's something that I think about now, cause I'm like, we're so far gone in some ways that like as a result of the consequences of all these like actions and that we've kind of created systems of entrenched players in society right and now we're like oh we'll just get over it just like make more money and like you'll get a better loan and increase your credit score but all the other societal factors that work around you might not be set up for that so i think that like i was fortunate enough to go to a high school that was really diverse and i kind of started seeing like diverse not only from like ethnic from like a ethnic point of view, but also socioeconomic point of view. And I remember really starting to see that with my friends who were from like lower income households. And I was like, oh, so you have to pay more for that because you are like, because in the eyes of the bank, you're seen as when I'm like, well, that's not fair because you don't even have the money for that, you know? So I think it starts becoming more complicated for sure. And like lower socioeconomic spectrums, regardless of, of race, for sure. So to go one level deeper on that, <laughs> we're not afraid. We just keep going. <laughs> is that um, does that mean that capitalism itself is a bad system, or does that just mean that there needs to be more awareness in the world? What do you think? This is really deep. I think it speaks to the kind of what I mentioned earlier: how human beings are imperfect. You know, we are flawed. Like in general, we, we're flawed. We have biases. You know, that's normal. That's part of human nature. And we, we, we're not perfect players. And I think if you assume perfect action by perfect people, then probably capitalism works really well as a system. 
but we're not. And so I think that it has to be a combination of like talking about things like biases and what that means in decision making, talking about things like injustice, you know, like what is systemic injustice? Like what are the systemic barriers to access for people? And things like affirmative action have to be the answer, right? Where you're like, okay, well, we know that because we're flawed people, we can't just assume everyone's going to be like, everyone's going to value whatever equally. So we have to have systems and guardrails in place that let us kind of like overcome those obstacles. That's kind of my view on it. But like I said, ask me in 10 years, ask me in 15 years, 20 years, I'll still keep thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> You're awesome. Thanks for taking on all of these questions. Appreciate it. Yeah. More tactically, what are some sort of fun money decisions or fun pieces of advice that you've either given or been the recipient of in personal finance? Oh, I guess one thing that's been important for me, and I think that's really enabled me to live the life I lead is to pursue a really good education and to have access to great higher education. So I was really fortunate that from a very young age, my parents always told me, even when my parents weren't that well off, they always said, you never have to worry about college because that is our responsibility to you as our child um, is to make sure you get the best education that you can. And we will, they're like, don't ever worry about money when you're applying to college because it's, that's our duty to you. And so I think that was a very big like burden that was lifted. I didn't realize then, but now I look back on it in hindsight, that freedom to just strive academically was probably the best gift that I was given financially because it opened up doors for professional opportunities that then opened up doors, you know, for, for money-making opportunities. And then, so when I decided to go to business school, I, even though I take out a loan and pay for it myself this time, I was really not afraid because I was like, I'm, this is, this is the opportunity that I've been working for. And this is the place I deserve to be. And this is what I will, like, this is, I'm conquering this, you know? So in a weird, yeah, education, I think has been like the biggest or like not having a fear of education and always thinking like that is the key. That is the thing that will open the door for me. It's just constant pursuit of like higher knowledge will give me like financial rewards. And I'm really glad that it worked out for me. What's one of the favorite things that you've written about on the different publications you've written for? So for Forbes, I put together a series on where I investigated whether fintechs were really tackling the issue of inequality or not, because I was like, well, if we're going to use data to make decisions, that means that the human bias element's going to be rude, right? And like, it's going to be kumbaya and everything's going to be fair. And that was a really fun series to write because I investigated ways that it wasn't, that it was still being short, it was still shortchanging inequality. So in things like mortgage lending, for example, and I got to investigate like areas where I thought it was actually succeeding. So like in Latin America, fintechs are overwhelmingly like have large reputation of women, for example, like in the workforce, which for Latin America is huge because of the kind of like the traditionally like macho society that exists there. So I really enjoy putting that series together. And when I think of the kind of voice I want to create in finance, it's always to kind of examine things that people don't often like to kind of like pick at things that aren't, that are overlooked to people. Maybe don't want to discuss it. Don't want to dissect as much. And so that was enjoyable. And it was great to see it get like, people would like share it on LinkedIn. And I was like, who are you? How do you, why do you read? Who do you, how do you know this? And so to see that it got like some, some kind of buzz was pretty exciting. So your pod is being picked up. Can we talk about this? Yeah, 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 yeah. We signed the distribution okay. agreement. It's all copacetic. All right, cool. Let's talk about it. Um, very excited to share that my podcast, Money Memories, will be distributed by Louisville Public Media, which is the organization that runs one of the local NPR affiliates here in the Louisville, Kentucky area. We were discussing this earlier. Technically, I'm not like 100% sure what that means, but I hope that it means that I'll reach a wider audience by having distribution and a, like a like a legit, a legitimate or nationally recognized platform. And my goal is to just reach a broader audience and to have more people connect with Money Memories and to feature more guests. 
My ultimate white whale guest is Kyle Kuzma, who plays for the LA Lakers. So if nothing else, if I just get Kyle on my show, I can just, I'll just stop. I'll just pick I'm done. <laughs> Why him? Why him? <laughs> Why Kyle Kuzma? Okay, there's a number of reasons. Okay, dig in. Number one, he actually played four years of undergrad before going to the NBA, which I think is not very common. And so I feel like that's probably like, you know, what's it like being someone who was not necessarily drafted immediately um, in college to go play for a really big team, like the dynamics of that too. The contract he signed with the Lakers is like not that lucrative actually. So what's it like again, being on an all-star team when you're like not the richest player and how do you prevent yourself from going broke as we know many athletes do. Number three, I was listening to an interview with him one time when he said that he once got a tattoo that he paid for with an old iPod. And I really just want to understand the cost benefit analysis involved and like, how do you value a tattoo? Like explain Kyle, explain yourself. And so number four, that goes into like his overall, I think ethos and charisma and like character. I think he'd be like a really fun show, really fun guest. And I definitely start with the iPod tattoo story. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he listens to our podcast. So I'm, you know, once he hears you, he knows that you want him as a guest. I don't think you'll have a problem. <laughs> Kyle, please, it's only 20 minutes of your life. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm going to spring a question on on you here. The podcast is called Why'd You Buy That? And we would love it if you could describe something you've bought in the past week or so, what it was, and why'd you buy it? Are you ready to do a why'd you buy it? I'm ready to do the Why'd You Buy It. I'm really excited. I was so excited when I saw the name of the show. And then I was like, damn it, we're in a pandemic. And I'm like, not buying anything. So I had to really, really think about what it was that I bought recently. And I did buy something in the last week. I bought seat covers for my car because I recently purchased a car that has leather seats. And they told me that the seats will stain if I don't put covers on them. So I went on the good ship Amazon, as one does. And I picked out some seat colors that didn't offend my eyeballs. I was like, these ones, these ones. And so I ordered them. So it was a very um, utilitarian purchase. And I think that also speaks to, I'm a pretty utilitarian person. I don't really like spend money on, probably because I grew up, you know, with parents who were like, that is worth 75 cents, never spend money. (laughs) And especially now in the pandemic, like I'm not shopping for clothes or honestly, the things I regularly spend money on are like food, like groceries, wine, and the occasional thing for my car because I need to like outfit it now. What kind of car did you get? Did you get a new car, a used car? Leather seat sounds nice. Sounds nice, yeah. But it's, I mean, I got it's new for me, but it's a used car. So obviously, I applied all my personal finance principles here, and I really negotiated a hard bargain. I like knew my purchase price going in. I did like everything correctly, and I bought it from a neighbor down the street. He put it in his front lawn. This sounds like a very Kentucky story. People probably think like this is how we do things in Kentucky. Like I saw a car in the lawn. Nah, uh, I drove by, but that's literally what I did. I saw a car in the lawn. He, and he I had was it on like, his front lawn, not the driveway. The lawn. lawn. He's like, it had his boom for sale. And this is a really, I live in a nice state. Anyways, I'm done. I've trashed Kentucky's reputation enough. I'm never there. Louisville Public Media, please continue to distribute me. (laughs) So, what's the deal with the seats? Like, I, is it an older car or something? Like, I wouldn't think leather seats, you would need seat covers. Like, I thought that's why you had leather seats is because they're more like resistant. So my le- the color of my seats are like beige, 
And so the per- like when I took it to get detailed, the guy was like, you know, these beige sheets, they really like pick up like the ink from your jeans. And he's like, once they start picking that up, it's really, really hard for anyone to clean them out because it just ruins the quality of the leather. So he was like, I really recommend but, but that surprised me too, because my parents have another car with leather seats, but it's black. So we never thought about it. But this is like a PSA to all your listeners. If you have light colored leather to like consider a seat cover. And what makes a good looking seat cover? This one looks sporty. Even though I got an SUV, which is not sporty, these ones had these like cool black stripes down the middle. And I was like, yeah, that looks like, that looks athletic. <laughs> oh, my car looks athletic. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's a good choice. All right. We'll see. Cool. Thanks for spending the time with us. And if people want to find you, could you take a second here and tell them how they can find you and your podcast and your writings? Of course. Everything lives on www.bearandthebull.com. So bear like a grizzly bear, bull as in like the, you know, like the animal, the bull. You can listen to my podcast, Money Memories, everywhere podcasts are available. And the easiest way to connect with me is on Instagram. So I have two accounts at bear.andthebull and at money underscore memories. So yeah, I'm always looking for new guests. I always love connecting with people. So feel free to give me a shout. Thanks so much. Thank you guys. Type of girl and everybody knows it